It was the summer of 1998. NSYNC had just begun tearing up the hearts of every young adolescent that had formerly been singing Hanson's Umbop. And Paula Cole was crooning out the sentiment that not wanting to wait for our lives to be over at the beginning of every episode of the hit TV series Dawson's Creek. Jinko jeans with 60-inch bottoms were the rage. And Godzilla had returned to the big screen with the help of a tiny little talking chihuahua that had us all saying, Yo quiero Taco Bell. And WWJD bracelets had put Lifeway Christian stores on the map in a whole new way. It was a different era. I had just finished eighth grade, and I was enraptured in the long glory days of summer, which involved me riding my bike down to the gas station at the corner to stock up on the essentials of bubble tape and surge, because surge. And then I would ride down to the library to check out a VHS copy of The Sandlot, which I would go home and watch, quoting almost every line about wanting some more, The Great Bambino, and learning that heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And after his stunt at the community swimming pool, I'd even tip my hat to Michael Squint's Paladoris <laughs> and wish him and Wendy Preppercorn the very, very best of futures. But all of my summer plans had slowly come grinding to a halt because my cousin Patrick had come to stay with us for a few weeks during the summer. We'd had a good start. We'd been to the, to the dollar movie a couple of times, seeing $4 matinees, and then even went deep sea fishing and, uh, off the coast of North Carolina, and we came in with a pretty decent haul. We were feeling good about ourselves, but his visit, it wasn't uncommon. See, our, my mom and her sisters would often put my cousins and I together, like the one time my, Chad, my cousin Chad got the chicken pox. And my aunts and my mom decided we should all sleep in the same bed for days until we all got the chicken pox, and therefore we were all done with it. So when the scratching and the screaming stopped, there was maybe only three cousins when there were four at the beginning. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I loved my cousins. Growing up uh, with siblings that were older, they were the closest thing to peer siblings that I had. But as budding young adolescents, we would often get on each other's nerves. And Patrick and I, this summer in particular, had met our limit. We were completely done with one another. The friendship thing had far been gone. The family identity that we had was dwindling. And we were just at the pure spot of playing pranks on each other all summer long. And so one summer day, as I'm sitting in the back of my friend Brian's truck, my cousin comes pulling, pulling up on his bike, and Brian's kid brother is sitting in the back of the truck eating hot banana peppers. I, to this day, I don't know why. Kid was weird when he was a kid. He's still strange, but that was his snack. And my cousin Patrick comes riding up, and he says, what's that? Now, what I'm about to tell you is not my finest moment, but I saw an opportunity, and I took it. Patrick, you've never had an Indian strawberry? No. What's an Indian strawberry? Oh, they're the best. They're the sweetest, coolest, most refreshing fruit you can ever eat. 
Can I have one? Yes. I wish I could describe to you the satisfaction in this young middle schooler's heart as I watched my dear cousin bite into this pepper and then that satisfaction quickly turned to guilt as I watched his eyes well with tears and he hopped on his bike and rode off toward my house. Now, I knew what was coming when I got home And I received something from my mother that, let's just say that I cannot describe using words in this room without having my mouth washed out with soap. Um, Let's just say I was sore for a few weeks later, right? I was a jerk to my cousin back then. He was family, and I loved him, but he frustrated me, and I got tired of it, and I was a jerk. Sometimes... It's easy to be nasty to those that we love the most, isn't it? It's not just in the Indian strawberry prank sense. We quickly can let things get a lot worse. Some of our worst arguments, some of our most wounding verbal daggers can come from and are directed towards those that we love dearest. And we all at some point or another have felt those hurts, haven't we? We've all either been the recipient of someone saying something where you're going, I can't believe you just said that. Or maybe you've been the offender, and as the words have escaped your mouth, you're going, no, like, come back in. We've all been there, and we've all felt those hurts. In the words of the country music artist Rascal Flatts, what hurts the most is being so close. These hurts don't just limit themselves to our blood relatives, though, do they? In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes to a group of new believers. And in chapter 4, he reminds them that they are family. He reminds them that they are all sons and daughters of God. And then just a few chapters later, in chapter 6, he instructs them on what it looks like to bear each other's burdens. It's almost as if he understands something that we know well, too. Even our kingdom family here on earth can be remarkably hurtful when our roots are not planted deep in Jesus. We are in a series called Rooted, part two of three, where we've been looking at Jesus' words in John chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Jesus highlights for us three major relationships that we cannot ignore. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other as believers, and our relationship with the world. Now last week, Brandon helped us to examine this first relationship, the relationship with God, and what it means to be rooted in or to abide in Jesus. And this week we learn something that we too often forget. This is not a solo mission. Something that frustrates me and even saddens me, honestly, to the core is when I hear someone say, well, my faith is private. My friends, hear me. If you are a Christian, your faith is not private. 
It was never intended to be. From Genesis through Revelation, Scripture is very clear. We are created to live in community. We are created to pursue Jesus collectively as a family. We are to love each other. You cannot go solo on this. So let's look in John chapter 15, verse 12. If you're able, let's please stand in the honor of God's word as we read. Also, if you're new here to NCC, this is something that we will do often. We'll stand as we read God's word. And the reason that we do that is because we believe that the Bible is, in fact, God's word, that it is without flaw, and therefore it is our ultimate standard for how we live all of life. It is to be read, studied, honored, and obeyed. So let's begin in chapter 15, verse 12. This is where we left off last week. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You may be seated. This is a pretty cut and dry text, isn't it? At least it seems that way on the surface. It begins and ends with the same sentiment. Jesus commands not suggests, not hints at. Jesus commands that we love one another. So who is this one another? We need to remember the context of this passage here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who love him, those who are following him. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those that in the book of Peter, it calls these sons and daughters of God, the royal priesthood, the holy nation that is set apart before the foundations of the world for the purpose of glorifying God and proclaiming him to the nations. He's speaking to us. How, how are we to love one another? Jesus puts it simply, he says, as I have loved you. Now, at this point in the conversation, we have to, again, remember context. Because for us in this room, when we think of how Jesus has loved us, often we jump to the cross. We think that Jesus has laid down his life for us, which he has. But at this point in the conversation, Jesus has not gone to the cross. This is not post-resurrection. This is him living right now with his disciples. And he looks at them, and he says... Love as I have loved you. Well, what does that mean? As family in Christ, how are, to be, how are we to be rooted in him and rooted in biblical community? In verse 13, it's almost as if Jesus speaks prophetically to his disciples, knowing what is to come. Knowing of what he is going to do for them, he speaks of greater love has no one than this, but one who lays down his life for his friends. This is a humble, self-sacrificing love. 
And so as believers, we must begin with this idea of sacrifice. We must be a people that give up the things that we love for the things that we love even more. We must believe that we are, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is sacrifice. So when we think of how we should live within biblical community, how we should love each other, how we should be rooted in our relationships with others, they need to first be marked by sacrifice. That we are quick to give rather than to receive. Recently, I was in Cuba on a missions trip with an incredible team of people. And thank you for the many of you who were praying for us as we were there. We had an incredible time. Um, we, we were able to preach, to connect with about 200 young people from the ages of 15 to 35. And what we did kind of day in and day out is we met, there were three worship services every day that were all within the upper to mid 90 degree temperatures in the sanctuary with no HVAC, um, but instead they had mosquitoes, birds, and the occasional bat. So that was great. Um, but you know, the thing that was incredible about this trip is that despite, despite all these things, they loved and went so hard after Jesus. It was intoxicating to watch a people go so hard after Jesus in, in, an, in an environment where for many of us, we'd be like, I'm out. Like, I am too hot. I've been bitten five times by this mosquito, and the offspray in America is useless against Cuban mosquitoes. Like, I'm done. And they're going, just give me more Jesus. He is all that I want, and he is enough. As I spoke to the dean of the seminary there, a man named Manuel, he asked me an interesting question. He said, what is it like to be a Christian in America? And so, you know, what do you mean? We talked a little bit about the church and that type of thing. And he brought up an interesting study that's, that's recently been done where he said that global Christianity as a whole has grown over the last four years by about 1% a year. And so we've, global Christianity has gone from about 44% of the world saying Jesus is Lord to about 47, which is incredible. In America, that number has dropped by 7%. Let that sink in. The question he asked me is, what is it like to be a Christian in America when America is no longer the center of global Christianity? That wounds our pride a little bit, doesn't it? Because we're Americans, right? We think we're the center of it all. If it's American, it's got to be better. Those, those statistics are staggering for me. And it's all the more reason that we need to think in a missional mindset. Not just globally, but even here locally. And so my friend Ted Duck and I, we prayed over Manuel, we prayed over the seminary, that as they're training pastors and releasing them out into Cuba, that they would be fruitful. And Manuel prayed for us. Do you know what he prayed? He prayed that the American church would learn to love Jesus again. He prayed that we would learn to love Jesus again. I would echo that prayer as well. That would truly be what marks us, is our love for him. 
there's a time when we were in there when we were there where our team was sitting all together and we were singing some songs together. And we're singing songs that we sing here, like Glorious Day and Tremble, and we're we're sitting there singing, and I have my my charts in a little binder like this. And our translator Geraldo is sitting next to me. And I looked at Geraldo and I said, Hey, uh, can I set this binder here on your leg? And he, he goes, if Jesus asked for your donkey. And I was like, what did you just say? <laughs> it, it kind of threw our whole team. Like that, that was just his verbal response. If Jesus asks for your donkey. I'm going, what? And he says, well, if, if what he means was, if we are truly family, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, when we serve each other, it is as if we are serving Jesus. And he goes, if Jesus asked me for my donkey, I would give it to him. And he goes, so? Here's my leg. <laughs> like, put your binder there. But this was the heart of the Cuban people. That it was better to give than to receive. Always. We may be countries apart, but we are one family in Christ. And when one of our family is in need, we must be quick to operate out of our blessings. To bless out of the way that God has blessed us. In John 15, Jesus continues, and we see how he loved his disciples and that he chooses them. Now, why is this so significant, again, in this conversation, as Jesus is looking his disciples in the eye, and he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It was a common practice in that day for every young Jewish boy to participate uh, in the synagogue early on in spiritual training in the temple. And so they would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. So if you ever think you have a problem with scripture memorization, there you go. First five books, go at it. But they would memorize these things, and then they would seek out a rabbi. The young boys would seek out a rabbi and ask if they could come and follow him. Now, what's interesting in this is that the rabbi would then have one of two responses. One, if he felt like they had done everything they needed to do, if they were good enough, if they had earned their spot with him, he would say, come and follow me. And if they had not, he would say, go back and be about your father's business. And so they would go home and they'd learn the trade of their fathers. Now, this is interesting because as you think about the men that Jesus called, at what stage in life were they? They were not young Jewish boys, were they? They were grown men, back about their father's business. And so when Jesus, the rabbi, pursues them, and he says, come and follow me, he's essentially calling the rejects. He's calling the ones that weren't good enough at the beginning, the ones that couldn't earn a spot with a rabbi on their own. Does this type of language sound familiar to us? As followers of Jesus, it should. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, perhaps for someone who got it all together, someone might die. But God shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, while we didn't make the cut, while we couldn't do it on our own, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The most a person can do for a friend is to die for him, to lay down his life. So as Jesus speaks of this example, he shows to us that death is such a clear demonstration of love. Paul writes on this again in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Why did Jesus choose his disciples? Why did he choose us? He chose us out of love and to set us apart for his purposes. Look again at verse 16, Luke chapter 15. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, while Jesus emphasizes the believer's responsibility to abide in him and to bear fruit, Jesus does not omit his divine sovereignty. You did not choose me, but I chose you. His choosing is not merely a selection to be his disciples, but one that results in our belonging exclusively to Jesus rather than the world. Jesus' election of his people means salvation and service. We were bought with a price and saved for a purpose. To bear lasting fruit. We were chosen to glorify God and to make him known. Being chosen by Christ should motivate us to prayer. It should motivate us in our love for one another and in our willingness to endure the world's hatred so that they might know Jesus. We were bought with a price and saved for a purpose, to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. This is a huge task. And it's one that Jesus never intended for us to do alone. We need each other. Look to someone next to you and say, I need you. Now look at somebody else and say it like you mean it. <laughs> we need each other. We say it, but sometimes we don't act like it. We were created to live in biblical community for biblical mission. This is why here at NCC we have things called missional communities. We call them MCs for short. 
And recently, my wife Kristen and I, we went through an MC training here at the chapel, and I was amazed at how much I needed to unlearn. See, for as long as Kristen and I have been married, we've been a part of small groups. We've been a part of these communities that were, were focused together on finding community, on growing in Christ, and, and looking inward together. And this was, this was a good thing, but the goal of a missional community is different. The goal of missional community is to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's to live on mission where you live, work, and play with a group of individuals that have the same heart and the same focus. See, the difference is subtle, but the end result is drastic. If you begin in community and your focus is community itself, you will often neglect mission. But if you begin and your focus is mission, if you begin and your focus is making much of Jesus every day to everyone, community is a byproduct. It happens naturally. But why is it that we so often start with community and neglect mission? Quite simply, it's because we are sinful and selfish. It's because we lose focus of the call of Jesus to go out into all the world and to make much of him. Instead, we're content to sometimes sit back and let someone else do the work while we soak up the glory of the sun, while we grow ourselves. My friends, based on the statistics that we were talking about earlier, we have been soaking for too long and we are getting crispy. Let us not forget why we exist as followers of Jesus. So why is this all so important? Why can't we just live our lives alone, just us and Jesus? We say it all the time that Jesus is enough for us, right? And so we go, Jesus is enough, just none of you, right? Why is this, why are we as a community of people so important? Why do we need each other? Why do we need to engage in kingdom family? Even when our family frustrates us, even when we feel like well, I've just had enough, even when we're at the point of Indian strawberry pranks. Why? Because we cannot love Jesus completely and treat his people poorly. We cannot love Jesus completely and treat his people poorly. See, these three relationships in John 15, our relationship with God, with each other, and with the world, they work in sync with one another. So if I am truly rooted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will give me a heart for the people that Jesus loved and died for, his church. And he will give me a passion to be sent out into the everyday places and spaces of life to make much of him there. If I am not rooted in the world, in mission, making much of Jesus... If I don't have a heart for the world, then I am probably not rooted in Christ the way that I think that I am. And if I am not rooted in biblical community, showing love to my brothers and sisters in Christ in a humble, sacrificial, giving manner, then it is also likely that I really don't love Jesus the way that I should. We 
cannot love Jesus completely and treat his people poorly. But can you imagine? Can you imagine if we did? If we truly took up the command of Jesus, if we truly lived in obedience to him, loving each other as he has called us to love, Can you imagine what it would look like if instead of arguing and fighting over preferences, if we gave up the things that we loved for the pursuit of the one that we love most? What if we loved like Jesus loved? If we were truly rooted in Christ, rooted in biblical community, and rooted in the world on mission? making much of Jesus in the everyday places and spaces of our lives. Can you dream it? It would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. May we learn to love Jesus again, church. I believe that we can begin to see what this might look like as we lean into Jesus and into communities that are centered around him. And some of you are already doing this. Some of you have done this. As you're pursuing Jesus and trying to figure out what it looks like to truly love each other as Jesus has loved us. And you began this journey through rooted groups the last fall. And so to conclude this time here in the service today, what I'd like to do is I want you to hear from the two individuals that went through rooted in the fall. Individuals that pursued biblical community to be rooted in it as they pursued Jesus together. Let's turn our attention to the screens.